All right, so we're continuing on in our series, Life, uh, which is a series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the question that we've been asking in this series has been, how do we know that we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us who profess faith? Um, the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that the reason why he wrote 1 John, 1 John was that for those of us who profess faith in the Son of God, that we may have the assurance of eternal life. And so throughout this series that we began oh, about five or so weeks ago, we've been looking through 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 2, which we're going to complete today. And John has been giving us a series of assurances for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, that that profession of faith has actually led to the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us, both now and with the hope of that in eternal uh, in eternity. And so just by way of review, what we've been talking about in ways of assurances that John has been giving us is that he has been reminding us, number one, that an assurance of faith that we have in Jesus Christ is that if we find ourselves uh, needing confessing our need for the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we recognize ourselves in our natural spiritual state as sinners who are in need of the sacrificial lamb, uh, the sacrifice, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to appease God's wrath, his judgment, and uh, he died the death on the cross for us to overcome sin and death. Number two, John has been talking about another assurance, which is, do we find ourselves uh, voluntarily, volitionally wanting to obey the commands of Jesus in our life. Not because we need to do it because we need to be saved. Um, not because we need to do it, otherwise God will strike us down. But do we, do we do that because we find that that is the way to life. That is the way to righteousness. And we want to, to do that with our lives. Number three, another assurance John has been giving us is do we find ourselves being drawn into wanting to love God to love Jesus and to love God's people, being in fellowship with God, Jesus, and his people, as opposed to just kind of doing our life on our own outside of that. Number four um, is uh, actually, uh, actually, we're going to go on to another one today. Yeah, I think I missed one there, but that's the gist of it. So today we're going to look at another assurance, which is this, abiding in God's truth, in a world of antichrists. Abiding in God's truth in a world of antichrists. The definition of an antichrist is a man who does one of two things. Number one, it's a man who becomes a false teacher. In some way misrepresents who Jesus Christ is. That is the first definition of an antichrist. Some kind of false teacher who either calls himself Christ or misrepresents or teaches falsely about Christ. And number two, some kind of world leader who through political or military or economic might seeks to take over the world in order to get the world to worship them. Some kind of false teacher or some kind of world leader who seeks world worship through political, military, or economic life. Two basic definitions of an antichrist. Now, 
Some of you may have never heard a message about the Antichrist in church. You might have heard it said, you might have read that in scriptures, but you never maybe heard an entire message devoted to that. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for that if you have never heard a message on the Antichrist. I think, number one, there are many pastors out there who don't actually believe in the Antichrist. They don't believe in what the Bible's saying. Um, and so they don't teach on it. And number two... Even if a pastor does believe in the existence of Antichrist who have come or a future coming final Antichrist, I think there are a lot of pastors out there, they're just scared to preach on it. They say, I don't want to scare my congregation. I'd rather just talk about love, peace, happiness, forgiveness. And so let's just talk about that. Let's have them have an uplifting, positive message. The last thing I want to do is preach on a message about hell or a message about the Antichrist. And so a lot of times... Uh, it's a really a disservice to you as a congregation uh, because that is uh, referred to in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. I think that when we talk about the topic of the Antichrist, you want to think about this on a macro level and then on a micro-biblical level. You want to think about this on a macro level. Why is this topic important? Why is it important for us here today in the 21st century at this particular time, you know, uh, in October of 2021? Why should we be listening to this? And I think on a macro level, and this is my opinion, okay, my opinion is this, is that when we look on the macro scale of what's happening in our world, uh, the stage is set, for the Antichrist to uh, take control of the world. If the Antichrist is not already alive, the final Antichrist right now, uh, the stage has certainly been set. Why do we say that on a macro level? We say that for the following reasons. Number one, the nation of Israel exists today. They were not just a biblical people referenced in the Bible. They weren't just like a scattered people. But the statehood of Israel was established in 1948. And Israel plays a massive role in being deceived by the Antichrist uh, and ultimately coming to faith later on in the end times. That would not exist if Israel was not a state. And that was established in 1948 and exists to this day. That is a sign that we are in the final stages. What are some other stages on uh, signs on a macro level? Well, when you look in Revelation chapter 13, the Antichrist and false prophet, they kind of unite the world in religious and military, political, economic uh, uh, oneness. And it says that people will receive the mark of the beast, called 666, the mark of man, whether that's in actual numbers exactly or, or in some ways uh, is unclear. And no one, it says in Revelation 13, could buy or sell without the mark of the beast that they receive on their forehead or on their right hand. Now, that could not happen unless... You had a world stage that was globally connected. Do we have a world stage, a world culture that is globally connected? We do. And that could not happen logically unless we had money in the form of digitization. It'd be very hard to receive the market beast if we were still on the gold standard, you know, we're just, or bartering, you know. Uh, just agricultural goods, or if it was just gold, or if it was just paper money. But now that we have digital money, with the acceleration of the cryptocurrency conversation, you can see why uh, that lends itself to the stage of the Antichrist. And lastly, on a macro stage, uh, we can see widespread apostasy 
a falling away of people from the church and from the faith, especially here in the West. And so I look at that on a macro stage, and that makes sense to me. That makes sense that we are nearing the final times because the Antichrist would need that. And yet, it's not just on a macro stage. It's also on a micro on a micro consideration of why this message on the Antichrist is important. And I say micro not because the Bible's not important. It's a micro thing. But on a smaller level, not so much a global stage, it's important to listen to a message on the Antichrist for three reasons. Number one, God wants to warn us. He wants to warn us through the teaching on the Antichrist to examine our faith. He wants us to pause and and look around and see how many people are leaving the Christian faith, how many people are leaving the church. He wants us to look at our lives and say, you know, I am reminded that there is an evil force, evil persons, evil final person that will arise to global domination. And so he wants us to take a look at our lives and say, in the scope of that, my pursuits of my career, my but the things that I idolize, like Brian was talking about, what do those things look like in terms of importance when I think about the bigger picture of God warning us through this time? Number two, on a micro stage, biblical stage, is God not only wants to warn us, he wants to sanctify us. He wants to sanctify us through us taking a moment to reflect on the Antichrist. Uh, the apostles P- Paul, Peter, John, all warned us of the end times. They said, we need to be alert. We need to be sober-minded. We need to redeem the time. We need to purify ourselves as we think about end times prophecy, as we think about the end of things. That is one of the sanctifying influences of why we need to think about how things will come to an end, how God will culminate things, what God will allow, the evil that will run rampant, the apostasy that will happen in the end times, is to sanctify us. It's to get us to say, let me stop and be alert and sober-minded. Let me redeem the time right now. And ultimately, let me make sure that my life is right with the Lord. And thirdly, on a micro level, there's a third biblical reason. God wants to not only warn us, sanctify us, but he wants to remind us that we can trust in him. He wants to remind us that we can trust in him during this time. God has given us his truth. He's anointed us with the Holy Spirit. And so he doesn't want us to fear, but he does want us to be alert and sober-minded. I believe, and this is a topic for another large message, which we don't have time to get into today, that by the time the Antichrist really emerges and makes himself known, that the church will not be here. I believe that the church will be raptured. I believe that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, where the trumpet will sound and God's people will meet uh, the Lord in the air. And so it is with that rapture that will uh, commence a seven-year period, which we will talk about in a few moments, in which the Antichrist will strike a pact with Israel to uh, gain the trust of Israel and the world and then turn on them in the final three and a half years. And that is where the great tribulation of Revelation 6 to Revelation 19 will take place in that final three and a half years of that seven-year period. So with all of that said, hopefully that sets 
uh, an understanding of why we need to listen to this this morning. And this is our next passage in 1 John chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. And let's all stand now for the reading of God's word. Rather, verse 18 to, yeah, 27. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. John writes this, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We went, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not ha- they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all, that all, they are all, are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Father, may we abide in you because you are the truth. You are not the lie. And yet the world is full of lies. The world will be deceived by the ultimate lie. And yet uh, we want to come to this time, Lord, to uh, be sanctified, to be warned, but to be renewed in our trust that you have called us your own, and that we do not need to fear these things, but we need to be aware. And may that put a perspective onto our lives, the idols which we worship, things that we pursue, um, what we give our lives to, Lord, knowing that all of this will come to an end to be made re- remade one day, Lord, but that there are dark days ahead for this world. And so uh, may we be encouraged and warned during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can have a seat. All right, so let's look at our passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. Uh, let's go back to verse 18. If you want to look down there with me. In verse 18, uh, John is writing, and he says, Children, it is the last hour. Let's stop there. Children, it is the last hour. Now remember, the Apostle John is writing this. He's maybe 90 years old or so. He's writing this from... Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, and uh, this is maybe about 60 years after the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so John, maybe about 90 years old, is very much an elder. That's why he's able to call uh, his audience here at Ephesus children. He has the status of an elder. He's not just older as an elder in age, but he also has the spiritual status as a spiritual elder. He's one of the original 12 disciples. He was first a disciple of John the Baptist, then Jesus. 
John would have written the Gospel of John by this time. Uh, that would have been circulated throughout the Christian world. Uh, John was also an elder in terms of spiritual uh, status because he, uh, he had followed many men. I mean, you think about where Ephesus was. Ephesus had quite a pedigree of Christian leaders to minister or pastor there. These are the men and women who, uh, who ministered or pastors at Ephesus. Ephesus. Ephesus had the opportunity of Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and now John. They all circulated throughout Ephesus. And church history tells us that John, as an elder, a spiritual elder, uh, had invested in godly men after him, alongside with him, before his death. Church history tells us that the, the lineage that came through John included godly men like Polycarp. Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. These were all early church fathers. John also discipled Ignatius of Antioch. These are all men who wrote extensively on the early church, and they came from the discipleship lineage of John, according to church history. And so when John says, dear children, he is speaking both as an aged elder, but also a spiritual elder. Again, verse 18, he says, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. What does it mean when the Bible says the last hour? The last hour is defined biblically as the time between when Christ first came and the time between his second coming, his return. That entire span of time, 21 centuries now, is defined as the last hour. So when it says, John says, children, it is the last hour. He's not literally saying it's the last hour as in Christ is going to come at this moment or I'm wrong. Biblically, the last hour is any Christ can come at any time. And we are to live as if, as if it is the last hour. When you look at the writers of the New Testament, they talk about we are living in the last days. Luke said we are living in the last days and he said in the last days in the book of Acts the Holy Spirit has been given to us in the last days. The writer of Hebrews said that in the last days God spoke to us through his son. The apostle James said in the book of James that in the last days people are hoarding wealth for themselves. The apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy and Peter said in 2 Peter that in the last days uh, evil people will reject God and the church. So the last hour, the last days, very similar. And so now you have John saying in verse 18, it is the last hour. And John is warning us that in the last hour, there will be antichrists. And so as we listen to this, we want to be reminded that when he says it is the last hour, we want to have an alertness, a sober-mindedness. We want to have an urgency about our faith. We want to have a commitment to redeem the time for the days are evil, Ephesians chapter 5. When he says it is the last hour, we want to be looking at our faith and say, how do I live 
with the expectation that Jesus could return at any moment. And what people miss, uh, people mock the Bible and they say, oh, you know, you Christians, you're so gullible. They've been saying it's the last hour for 2,000 years. They've been talking about how Jesus is going to return for 2,000 years and you guys are still waiting. How gullible are you guys going to be for another 2,000 years? And what people don't understand when they say that is one of the uh, purposes of why the Bible says it is the last hour, it is the last days, is not just to say it one day will be the last hour in the last actual 24 days, but God wants Christians to live as if this was your last day. God expects every one of us to make decisions about our lives as if it was the last hour, as if it was the last day, and we are to wake up every morning with that mindset. So, you know, you may say, oh, I need to save for retirement. Where are my kids going to go to college? What kind of career will I have in 30 years? I want to have kids. I want to have grandkids. And those are not bad things. But we need to balance that as Christians. Because those are all worldly concerns, right? Which in and of themselves are not bad things. But we need to balance it. And here's how Christians live differently. By saying, even though I can plan, I can be wise, I can want good things, I am still to live as if this is the last day. This is the last hour. And how do I do both at the same time? In verse 18, he continues on and he says, And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Verse 18. Again, an Antichrist is anyone who teaches in a false way about Christ, misrepresents Christ. An Antichrist is someone who is a world leader who wants to dominate the world politically, economically, militarily, and for the purpose of self-worship. And so John says again in verse 18, he talks about Antichrist is coming, so there is a final Antichrist, but then he says, so now many Antichrists have come. So he's talking about two different things. He's saying many have come, but there will be a final Antichrist. Uh, when John wrote this, he would have understood that many Antichrists that have come would have looked like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their whole false uh, religious system of works. That would have been a system of Antichrist. John would have known about the Judaizers that uh, plagued the church at Galatia who taught that you can only be a Christian if you're also circumcised uh, under Jewish law. That would have been an Antichrist teaching in the book of Acts. John would have certainly known at by this point of the emerging heresy of Gnosticism, which said that Jesus never really came fully in the body. It was just a spirit. And so what happens in your body really doesn't matter. Jesus died on the cross that you saw, but that really wasn't Jesus. It was a physical, it was an illusion. John would have seen the Gnostics at his time as Antichrist. And perhaps even beyond that, uh, by this time around 90 AD, this is maybe some 20 years removed from the Emperor Nero of Rome uh, blamed the Christians for, for burning down Rome. It's a false charge. Uh, and there was a mass persecution that had broken out. And so it's entirely probable 
that the Christian church would have also looked at Nero as an antichrist, a world leader who seeks worship, political, military, economic might, persecuted the church. Throughout church history, people have looked in the church, have looked at different figures as antichrist, whether that was the final antichrist or just a form of antichrist. The church throughout church history has looked at Muhammad as an antichrist. They have looked at Napoleon as an antichrist. The church has looked at Hitler as an antichrist. The church throughout history has looked at various popes as antichrist, the leader of a spurious version of the faith that would lead many astray in Roman Catholicism. And so John says that there are many antichrists that have come, and that would have meant something to him, and it has meant something to the church throughout church history. Many antichrists have come. But he says again in verse 18, but antichrist is coming. So it's not just many antichrists. There is a final antichrist that John has in mind as well. And it's not just John. It is the writers of the Old Testament, Jesus, the apostles. You can go back to the Old Testament. Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 11. Zechariah prophecies about a future antichrist when he says in Zechariah chapter 11, he said, God will raise up a shepherd, a false shepherd, to, de to devour the flesh of the sheep and tear off the hooves of the sheep. Notice in that passage in Zechariah chapter 11, it is God himself who raises up a false shepherd to lead other false sheep astray and to allow the sheep in the fold of God to suffer. God himself. God is never not in control. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but the Antichrist is not ultimately energized by Satan. He's actually allowed to do this and actually raised up by God himself for God's purposes. Zechariah chapter 11. Jesus said in Matthew 24, when he's quoting from the book of Daniel, and Daniel, uh, this is going back at the time, you know, um, 550 years or so before Jesus is saying this, 500 600 years. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, if he quotes the prophet Daniel, that Daniel writes that the Antichrist will rise up, he will strike a peace pact with the state of Israel. The Antichrist will use deceiving signs and wonders to lead people astray, to, to convince people that he is the Christ. And then at some point, the Antichrist will betray Israel, march into a temple, the rebuilt temple of God in the Old Testament, and declare himself to be God. It's what is called the abomination that causes desolation. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says that God is going to raise up a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction. This is a man that God will use um, and allow through his satanic activity to rule the world. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 10, 
uh, through 12. I'll read it to you. Paul writes, With wicked deception, uh, the coming of the lawless one, verse 9, is in the activity of Satan with powers of false signs and wonders, verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them. Who is them? Them is those in the end times who are left here in unbelief, who reject God. It actually says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, therefore it is God, God, who sends them. Who is them? Them are those who are left over in the end times who reject God a strong delusion, so that they, who is they, the unbelievers, may believe what is false, verse 12, in order that they, that all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What a mind blower. And that is why it is so dangerous and so damning to reject Christ here in this time right now is because if you are left in unbelief and the Antichrist takes control, you have two problems. You don't just have the problem of the Antichrist and the satanic system that he sets up in the world. Your bigger problem is God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says God himself sends them a strong delusion. God himself will send a delusion so that those who loved unrighteousness, rejected righteousness, and love and righteousness will believe the lie and what is false. Um, that is scary. To think that God can now be working against you as an unbeliever. Sending you a delusion. And so in verse 18, John says that there are antichrists. There's a final antichrist and there are many antichrists. Um, if you go to 1 John chapter 4, skip ahead, we'll be there in a couple months. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, John says something very similar to sum up verse 18. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, he says, Beloved, do not believe every evil spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, they being the Antichrist. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Scary stuff. Sobering. Uh, let's go back to our passage in First John chapter 2. And when he's talking about in verse 18, a final Antichrist and many Antichrists, we want to ask ourselves a question. What are the characteristics? What are the characteristics of Antichrists? And he's going to spend some time in this passage talking about three characteristics of Antichrists that we can recognize in verse 19, he says, number one, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, us being the church, the true believing church, they would have continued on with us. But they went out from the church that it might be complained 
that they are not of us, of us being the church, the believing church. So the first characteristic of an antichrist is that they come into the church, they pretend to be Christian, they pretend to be teachers and pastors and prophets and evangelists, and they don't stick with the believing church. They actually leave the church. And John is saying that because they left us, the actual believing church, it shows that they were never of us from the beginning. They were fake. They were false. They were wolf in sheep's clothing. And so that's the first way that you can tell. And so whenever you hear today of a church leader that falls into immorality unrepentantly, and then leaves the church, and then goes off and starts another church, and they fall into immorality in a disqualifying way, a way that breaks 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. They're disqualified as an elder. And sometimes that happens, but people are repentant. They're not antichrist. But there are other elders, teachers, pastors, evangelists, etc., who fall into immorality, they leave the church, and they say, still follow me. Antichrist. You see others who start teaching false doctrines in the church. Uh, one of the largest, if not the largest church today in Texas. It's a mega church of 40,000 people. The guys on television every Sunday. They meet in the old, I think, Houston Rockets uh, basketball arena. It's an an he's an antichrist. He's a false teacher. Those 40,000 people and how many millions around the world that watch that program are being led astray by an antichrist. The guy's going to rip off his mask one day and you're going to find out something different. And so antichrists, they went out from us and they either left the church, they didn't come back to the true believing church, or they left the true biblical doctrine of the Bible. And it shows that they were never part of us. A second way you can tell an Antichrist, in verse 22, John says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. The second way you can tell an Antichrist is they are a liar who denies the true biblical doctrine about Jesus Christ. They are a liar who denies who, the truth of who Jesus Christ was and is. In the 20th century, you would see uh, many antichrists who would teach Jesus was never resurrected from the dead. Uh, it was false. That's an antichrist. There are churches that do not talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are well-known um, atheists out there on YouTube who write books who say the resurrection is false. That is a form of the spirit of an antichrist. They deny who Jesus is and was and what he was about. Anyone who teaches that Jesus Christ, like for example in Islam, they teach that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God. He was just a prophet among many prophets, and Muhammad was the final prophet. That's the teaching of Antichrist. And today, in the 21st century, 
you can also see false teachings about Jesus Christ. Liars who deny who Jesus Christ is. What does that look like? I'll give you two examples. Whenever you hear teaching about Jesus that says something like the following, Jesus Christ was the only fully actualized human being to ever live. Maslow's Law of of Self-Actualization. He was the only truly human human being. And so therefore, we need to follow Jesus because just as Jesus unlocked the ability to live to our fullest human potential, we must follow Jesus so that we can become fully human and unlock our human potential. The Bible doesn't talk about human potential. The Bible doesn't say very positive things about who we are as human beings in our natural spiritual state, other than the fact that we were created in the image of God and uh, that maybe we have the common grace of God, we have a conscience, those kinds of things. But when it talks about the character of natural human beings, the Bible does not talk at all about us trying to attain to our human potential. It actually says we are stuck in our human destruction. And so that is a form of spiritual antichrist teaching. They are liars who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus did not come for you to achieve your human potential. What Jesus came is he was divine as God. He was the divine human being, and he has come to replace the broken, lost, dark, irreplaceable elements of your humanity with his divine humanity living through you. Another example of how we see liars who deny Jesus Christ here in the 21st century is whenever you hear people talk about, well, yeah, Jesus, he he achieved the Christ consciousness. Have you heard that before? The Christ consciousness. See, what Jesus did was he connected with this Christ spirit and he achieved a consciousness level through his times of meditation and prayer to connect with the Christ consciousness that allowed him to be supernatural. Now, they're not talking about the Holy Spirit. They're talking about the Christ. You know, several years ago, I was at a, a coffee shop in Long Beach called Portfolio. It's probably the most well-known coffee shop in Long Beach. I used to spend like four nights a week there till midnight on the weekdays. I was like the last one out the door uh, when we were starting our church in, in Long Beach. Um, I was just trying to meet people. I'd go to the open mic nights there. I'd put a chessboard in front of me. You know, when you put a chessboard in front of you, you're inviting people to come play you chess, and I just play them chess. I lo- usually lose because people who challenge you are usually pretty good. Um, and and I remember we, me, myself and Jay, we met with um, the owner of a bookstore called Open Bookstore. Open Bookstore was a bookstore across the street from the Creative Design Lab, our church art gallery in downtown Long Beach. And um, the the name Open to Open Bookstore really captured the store's philosophy of life and spirituality. They were open to everything. And so we met with one of the owners at Portfolio early on in our ministry, and we were just witnessing to her, talking about Jesus. And we were saying, yeah, you know, have you ever thought about Jesus? Can we read see some scriptures? And she said, oh, I know Jesus. And we're like, really? We didn't know that. I mean, to be honest, I mean, we saw all the occult books in your bookstore. We just, you know, we, that, that kind of surprised us. But I, we're so glad to hear that. And she's like, oh, yeah, I've known Jesus for years. I'm like, 
That's fantastic. Have you thought about visiting our church service sometime? I mean, we're right across the street from your store. And she's like, no, I, I don't really part of church. Um, I, I know Christ through the Christ consciousness. And we're like, what's the Christ consciousness? This is like 15 years ago. And she's like, yeah, I just connect through Christ through meditation, and he helped me to become who Christ was. And, and see, if she had said, well, I just don't believe in the resurrection, I had all the evidence for that. If she said, I don't believe Jesus is the only way, I could, you know, talk about some Bible verses and stuff like that. And had a, but when she talked about the Christ consciousness, I was like, what is that? And now I know you just take her to Colossians where it talks about Christ is eminent about, over the world and the universe. But at the time, it really represented where 21st century thinking is. How many of you have gotten into a conversation recently about trying to prove, like through the evidence or the uh, logical reasoning, that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead? How, ma how many of you have had conversations, real conversations with people recently, where they said, if you can prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead, I will believe? Very few of us. That was a big conversation in the 20th century, and there will always be people like that. But today, people are like, who cares? Wrongly. They say, who cares? Because I can just know Christ through the Christ consciousness. I can just look at the life of Christ as a human being and try and emulate them so I can achieve all the dreams of my human potential. And so whether he rose again from the dead is not really the issue for a lot of people anymore, unfortunately, and yet it is the cornerstone of our faith. So, we recognize Antichrist because they went out from us but were not in us. Number 2, verse 19. Verse 22, we recognize Antichrist because they are liars who deny Jesus is Christ. And verse 26, a third way you can recognize an Antichrist is they are deceivers who lead people astray. They are deceivers who lead people astray. Verse 26, John writes again, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They're trying to deceive you. What does deception look like today in the 21st century church in an age of spiritual exploration? Deception in the church, the spirit of the Antichrist coming into the church looks like this today in the 21st century church. Number one, you can be part of a church where if the spirit of the Antichrist is there, the thinking, the teaching of it, is they downplay the word of God. They downplay the Word of God. You, you start to listen to sermons that are just the pastor's stories. You start to listen. And I see these people all over YouTube all the time. They just are just giving you just general encouragement and exhortations. They're not actually teaching you Scripture. They're taught, they, they use the word God. They use the word, you know, brokenness, dysfunction. But they're not actually teaching you the Scriptures. A second example is they redefine prayer. They redefine prayer. So we don't we talk less and less about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, and we talk more and more about prayer as just repeating mantras, as just clearing your mind through soulful meditation, as centering prayer to try and listen to God's voice, whatever voice comes into your head. Uh, this is all ploys to lead you astray, one piece by another. And thirdly, um, 
you hear less and less talk about the word of God, prayer, and you hear less and less talk about making disciples of Jesus Christ. And more and more talk about social justice. And so when you come to a church that's under the influence of the spirit of the Antichrist, you start to hear sermons over and over again where you're like, wait, are we supposed to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey uh, the teachings of Jesus, get baptized in his name? Or are we hearing pretty much just about how we can work for social justice and races coming together to uh, alleviate economic inequality, to address the issues of of gender neutrality? Uh, How do we fix the environment? And on and on and on. And uh, and people lead, get deceived because they're not receiving the meat of the word. They're not actually connecting with God through prayer. And they're not doing the work of God in making disciples. And so this becomes a weak church that gets deceived. And so finally for today, um, here's the good news in verse 20. He says... But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Verse 21. I write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth, and there is no lie. Verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. What you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will do the will of uh, you, you too will abide in the Son and the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. This is the hope. Verse 20, verse 21, verse 24. He talks about being anointed by the Holy One who will guard the truth in us. And secondly, he talks about the truth of God's Word. Amidst a world of multiple antichrists that come to us to try and lead us astray, We have the truth, and we have the truth in two ways. We have it because we have been anointed by the Holy One, and we have the truth of God's Word. Let's look at both of those. We've been anointed by the Holy One. Verse 20, again, he says, you've been anointed by the Holy One. In verse 23, this causes us to confess Jesus, and we know the Father. Verse 27, this anointing teaches us everything. There's no tr- there's the truth in us, no lie, and we abide in him. The way that we as Christians will live in the last days, in the last hour, is the Lord himself will hold on to you through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That can never leave you. If you're a true believer, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's the word sealed in Ephesians 1 had the idea of a king's ring that would seal a hot wax on a letter to seal the envelope that cannot be broken or or changed. And we've been sealed with the anointing of the Holy One, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. He will lead you into all truth. He will work through your conscience when you are in a place of listening to false teaching. And He will not allow the lie to overcome us. And secondly, he says that God's truth, uh, we will have the truth of God's word. Look in verse 20. That's what he's talking about when he says in verse 20, we have all knowledge. Verse 20. Verse 21. He says, I write 
to you. He's writing the word of God. Verse 24, he says, let what you have heard from the beginning. What have you heard? You've heard the word of God. We have God's word. And this is why we need to study God's word. Because what we know throughout the scriptures is that the days are evil. Um, the world does not... I just had this conversation with James last week after Sabbath service, right? And we were talking about how in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. And, and you guys know the parable. In the parable of the wheat and tares, it says that wheat was sown and it started to grow, but as the wheat grew, Jesus tells the parable, weeds also grew. And the workers were like, well, should we take out the weeds? And Jesus says, no, because if you pull out the weeds, you're going to pull out the wheat. So let both grow together, and then the angels will separate them at the end of the age. They'll take the wheat into God's barn, the, the, the fake believers, the weeds will be burned. And one of the implications of that parable, parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13, is that when he says, let both grow together, the wheat and the tares. The wheat is the kingdom of God. The tares are the false king uh, sons of Satan and the Antichrist and the world system. That means what? That the world is becoming more and more deceptive. The more and more um, tempting, more and more evil as the days go, go by, not less. You can listen to the secular humanists, and I have read many books, and they will point out correctly that when you look at the world, at least the Western world, and a lot of the developing world, the world today economically is in a better place than it's ever been. There are less poor people economically than there have ever been throughout human history. You can look empirically at the data and find out there are less, there is less people dying of plague today than there have ever been throughout human history. You can look at the data and find out there are more people that are healthy today than at any other time in human history. And so you can look at the world and say, we're more connected. You know, how could the world be worse? And you know what the Bible's saying is the exact opposite. In the parable of the wheat and tares, and again, when you look at, uh, at Paul writing to Timothy, he said, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse in the last days. What that means is that the world is getting worse and more evil, and the leaders of the world system are getting more worse and more evil as time goes by. And so that is why we need to be especially committed to knowing the word of God. Because the deception will be greater and greater. And you kids out there, um, your world is going to be even more deceptive than it is today. And you will have to grow in wisdom and discernment in the ways of the Lord to discern what the true truth or the lie, good from bad, evil from righteousness is and the light from the dark. So for today, as we looked at the Antichrist, we want to come away from this. And, and, and you guys, um, this is a lot to put out there for you. It's very sobering. But that's good. It's good because every now and then, we need to be reminded that 
our world that consumes our thoughts, our health, our relationships, our work, our money, our hobbies, everything we always think about in our life. We need to be reminded that is always within the scope of God's larger plan. And one day, we're going to be going along in our lives, and God is going to come along, and he is going to pull the rug out from under our feet. And he's going to do that either by the rapture happening and Christ is coming back at a moment's notice and twinkle of an eye. He'll just pull the rug out. And he's going to do that when the Antichrist fully makes himself known and our whole world will change in our perspective, what we think is important. See, the trick as a Christian and the key to Christian maturity, if you are struggling out there with whatever idol that Brian was praying for, is to remind yourself of these end times realities. Because the minute you start thinking, now, where is this going? What could happen? Well, I need to get my house in order now. That is actually a sanctifying influence in your life. You want to be sanctified? You want to be pure? Study the end times teachings of the Bible. And you will be reminded of the bigger picture, as well as me. And you will be reminded, man, it's great that we have our Lord. And he's going to rescue us all from this. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father, as we close today, thank you for uh, this stern, important, sobering, alert reminder. I pray that our church may redeem the days, remembering that the days in this world are evil. I pray that we would remember that our lives are like a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. And I pray that we uh, may, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, we may examine ourselves daily to make sure that we are in the faith. Because the things that we um, think are important. One day, uh, you will change everything. And we want to make sure that we're we're ready for that moment, Lord. And so... Uh, May you do that. Bring us to Jesus. And uh, so we may not fear, but we may be alert and sober-minded. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and just close there for now. And um, there's prayer available for us. Uh, anyone who would like prayer, you can come on up and uh, receive prayer. We'd like to minister to your needs. And, um, and God bless you guys. All right.